You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 200 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. Well, we're back. We're back. Uh, We're moved, although we're still here in Colorado, and I've had my eye surgery and can see again, uh, kind of. Uh, But with all of that, it was a pretty stressful couple or three weeks, but I think our marriage has survived. I think so. We should be good until Appomattox now. Our marriage? Uh, Yes, I hope so. And after three different surgeries in just over a year, I hope I'm good on that front also for a while. Um, But in my old age, I'm just kind of falling apart, I guess. Rich! (laughs) Okay. So anyway, uh, as we mentioned on Facebook and the website and whatnot, uh, when we moved, we counted and we had 31 boxes of Civil War books. Uh, So yeah, that's a lot of Civil War books. And that doesn't even include World War II or Napoleon or anything else. Yeah, uh, it was a lot of books. And not all of them are unpacked yet. But we did get enough unpacked to cobble together this episode for you guys. Episode number 200. Woohoo! That is something of a milestone, right? Pretty cool. Uh, Some of you had been asking if we were going to do anything special for our 200th episode. But after being off of, of the podcast for a month or so, I think just getting back to recording is special enough. Although we are kind of sad that after 199 episodes, we aren't recording in our old spot in the kitchen anymore. Here in our new place, we're recording at the dining room table. And it's kind of weird, but we'll get used to it, I'm sure. Uh, All right, so that's probably enough catching up. Let's get back to the Civil War. As y'all know, through a long day of vicious combat back and forth across the Maryland countryside around the town of Sharpsburg, the date of the Battle of Antietam, September 17, 1862, became the bloodiest single day of the Civil War so far. In fact, that was a record that was not to be surpassed over the next two and a half years of bitter fighting. In Miller's Cornfield, which became a trampled, gory shambles, and therefore the cornfield in Civil War memory, around the little church building that many soldiers at first took to be a one-room schoolhouse 
but hereafter known to one and all as the Dunker Church, and later across to Sunken Road, now to be called the Bloody Lane, the federal attacks time and again nearly ruptured Robert E. Lee's precariously thin line. Lee was forced to scramble all day, shifting units to threaten spots. But so superior was the pressure of Yankee numbers that at the end of the day, after the Federals had stormed across the Antietam near the far right of the Confederate line, over the lower bridge, known ever after as Burnside Bridge, the final Federal assault up the adjacent hills, misturning Lee's flank and cutting his escape route to the Potomac, only because A.P. Hill and his division of rebels arrived from Harper's Ferry at the last possible moment and in exactly the right spot to save Robert E. Lee's bacon. Antietam was George McClellan's low point as a tactician, which is saying a lot. Little Mac not only failed to perceive the great opportunity that lay before him to smash Lee's army, but where he did fight, he conducted three consecutive uncoordinated assaults, with each of them broken into a further series of uncoordinated advances. And while Lee, by a combination of brilliance and luck, was able to use his outnumbered troops to counter each federal thrust, McClellan never used his own reserve to launch a decisive blow. Little Mac never felt the pulse of the battle, isolated as he was for almost the entire day at his headquarters east of the Antietam. He was never close enough to the action to develop the sense of the ebb and flow of the fighting, and thus never able to judge the decisive moment for a climactic effort. But this distancing of himself from the experience of combat had been McClellan's way throughout his tenure of command. In no battle had he gone to the point of collision, like Napoleon, or Rommel, or, well, like Robert E. Lee. Little Mac's habitual absenting of himself from the crises of combat suggests an unwillingness to face up to the moral consequences for which an army commander must bear responsibility. And at Antietam, because McClellan would not embrace those duties, and because he was an incompetent tactician, he sacrificed his soldiers' lives in unprecedented numbers. By distancing himself from the actual point of collision, from the ugly realities of combat, McClellan also missed the opportunity, through direct observation and experience, to make the timely decisions that in the midst of a battle can sometimes turn defeat into victory, or marginal victory into smashing triumph. And so, at Antietam, Little Mac frittered away opportunity and numerical strength through timidity and uncoordinated assaults. Time and again on September 17th, one more blow might have broken Lee's precariously thin line. But all day McClellan kept Fitzjohn Porter's Fifth Corps uncommitted, striking no blow with it whatsoever. And when late in the day Franklin's Sixth Corps also came onto the battlefield, only one of its brigades saw any serious action. But still, to save their lines from collapse, the Confederates had to fight desperately, and the butcher's bill for the one-day battle between the two armies was extraordinary. About 23,000 men killed outright, wounded, or missing. Although many in the wounded and missing categories were dead on the field or would die from their wounds after the battle. Almost incredibly, with just about every unit in his army shot to pieces, Lee remained on the battlefield for another day, 
daring McClellan to renew the battle, and only on the night of September 18th, 19th, did the Confederates pull back across the Potomac with little interference from the Federals. It's quite astonishing that little Max sat unmoving throughout the entirety of the 18th, with the badly battered rebel army still on the near side of the Potomac, since on that day McClellan had more fresh troops available to renew the contest than Lee had left in his entire force. Had McClellan driven forward on September 18th, he had every possibility of winning the great victory that he'd let slip through his grasp the day before. But Little Mac didn't attack again on the 18th, and that night Lee safely retreated across the Potomac and back into Virginia. Regarding the opportunity that had lain before McClellan at Antietam, Porter Alexander noted in his post-war account of his experience in, Lee, in Lee's army that, quote, For common sense was just shouting, Your adversary is backed up against a river which has no bridge and only one ford, and that the worst one on the whole river. If you whip him now, you destroy him utterly, root and branch and bag and baggage. Not twice in a lifetime does such a chance come to any general. Lee for once has made a mistake and given you a chance to ruin him if you can break his lines, and such a game is worth great risks. End quote. But George McClellan was not a general to take great risks on the field of battle. One can perhaps best sum up Antietam with the observation that the side with the generals capable of winning a decisive battle lacked the troops to do so, while the side that possessed superiority in numbers lacked a commander with the ability or will to win a decisive victory. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a matter of some debate as to who really won the Battle of Antietam. The conclusion you see most often is that it was a tactical draw. 
In our opinion, no one has really offered an adequate explanation of why Robert E. Lee decided to stay in place with his badly battered army on September 18th and dare a renewal of the fighting. Perhaps remaining in place was an attempt by Lee to mold public perception of what had happened, since by staying put he demonstrated that his lines had held and that he hadn't been driven from the field. Nevertheless, he couldn't remain long, and on the night of the 18th-19th, the Confederates withdrew back across the Potomac, and on the 20th, they fended off what constituted a federal pursuit at the ford at Shepherdstown. That clash at the ford at Shepherdstown will be the subject of the next members episode, uh, which we hope to get recorded tomorrow. But despite giving the Yankees a bloody nose at Shepherdstown, the Antietam campaign as a whole represented a setback for the Confederate cause. Marylanders had not, as Lee had expected, rejoiced and risen up at the advance of the rebel columns, and Lee's army had never seriously threatened Pennsylvania. At most, Lee had taken the war out of northern Virginia for a few weeks. However audacious Lee's waging of the battle itself had been, The fact remained that everyone in the North, and many observers in Europe, interpreted a pitched battle followed by a Confederate withdrawal as a Southern defeat. Chances for a foreign intervention declined when news of Antietam reached London and Paris. This is important because after rebel victories on the peninsula and at Second Manassas, the British Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, had anticipated the possible capture of Washington and thought it would be best if Her Majesty's government prepared for that eventuality by offering the services of Britain and France for mediation upon the basis of Confederate independence. Palmerston observed that, quote, if the Federals sustain a great defeat, they may be at once ready for mediation, and the iron should be struck while it is hot. If, on the other hand, they should have the best of it, we may wait a while and see what may follow. End quote. And so, on the international front, there was much at stake during the last days of the summer of 1862. But when news of South Mountain and Antietam reached London, Palmerston concluded that, quote, These last battles in Maryland have rather set the North up again. The whole matter is full of difficulty and can only be cleared up by some more decided events between the contending armies. Not all of Palmerston's fellow Englishmen agreed with the Prime Minister's assessment. Chancellor of the Exchequer William Gladstone declared in a speech at Newcastle that the Confederates, quote, have made an army, they are making, it appears, a navy, and they have made what is more than either, they have made a nation. End quote. But this proved to be a minority position when the British cabinet met to discuss the issue, and Palmerston decided to back away from some type of intervention after receiving news of Lee's retreat. Some historians have argued that had Lee not decided to make a stand at Sharpsburg and press his luck in a pitched battle, then an offer of European mediation would have been more likely in the absence of a battle at Antietam. We don't think that Abraham Lincoln would ever have submitted to foreign mediation under any imaginable circumstances, so it's interesting to speculate on what might have happened on the diplomatic front if Lee's Maryland campaign or the Battle of Antietam had finished differently, but in the end it has to remain just that, speculation. 
All that can be said for certain is that on the international scene, Antietam represented a a definite setback for the Confederate cause. Even more significant was the impact of Antietam upon Lincoln's decision to make public his proclamation on emancipation. It's ironic that McClellan, who remained totally opposed to such a radical measure, had nonetheless given Lincoln something on the battlefield that looked enough like a victory to allow the president to issue the preliminary emancipation proclamation on September 22, 1862. If the Battle of Antietam was a tactical draw, it was undeniably a strategic Union success. It frustrated Confederate hopes for British intervention, and it led directly to Lincoln issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. As one of our favorite Civil War historians, James McPherson, points out, the Federal success at Antietam therefore proved to be one of the conflict's great turning points. Abraham Lincoln had drafted an Emancipation Proclamation he shared with his cabinet in July of 1862. Most of the members supported such a proclamation, but Secretary of State William Seward persuaded the president to wait for a military victory to announce it. Seward pointed out that the embarrassment of McClellan's then-recent failure on the peninsula might make the proclamation appear to be a desperate measure, issued from a position of weakness by a government grasping at straws. Lincoln saw Seward's point and decided to wait for a Union military victory before publicly announcing the proclamation. Lincoln had to wait through August and the Union defeat at Second Bull Run, but he got the victory he needed in mid-September at the Battle of Antietam. Although a careful observer might point out that on September 17th, the battle itself was a tactical draw, nevertheless, the fact remained that Robert E. Lee had invaded, McClellan had advanced and attacked, and Lee had withdrawn. That seemed to resemble a Union victory of some sort, and Lincoln seized upon the opportunity to issue the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. On September 22nd, five days after the Battle of Antietam, Abraham Lincoln, acting on his authority as commander-in-chief, issued his preliminary proclamation. It declared that slaves in states still in rebellion on January 1, 1863, would be freed. The final Emancipation Proclamation, which Lincoln did sign 100 days later, on New Year's Day, 1863, remains an often misunderstood document. This despite the fact that no other single act, except perhaps the Gettysburg Address, has done so much to fix Lincoln permanently in the constellation of American history. Lincoln himself believed that, quote, as affairs have turned out, it is the central act of my administration and the great event of the 19th century, end quote. And yet debate has raged ever since the day the preliminary proclamation was issued over what its meaning was to be and what Lincoln's real intentions in issuing it were. Well, this is obviously a monumentally important event in the Civil War, in our nation's history, and that's why we're going to spend the next couple of episodes taking a closer look at it. But for now, for the balance of this show, we're going to hit the pause button on the Emancipation Proclamation, because we want to return to the military front, 
to talk a bit about what happened with Lee and McClellan and their armies in the aftermath of Antietam and the Confederate retreat back into Virginia. Though forced to withdraw back across the Potomac after Antietam, nevertheless, Robert E. Lee remained reluctant to give up plans to move the war back into the North. Lee, in fact, wanted to act immediately. Less than a week after his retreat from Sharpsburg, he wrote to Jefferson Davis, explaining his desire to march right back into Maryland and resume the offensive. Lee admitted, though, that such a move wasn't practicable. Lee told Davis, quote, In a military point of view, the best move, in my opinion, the army could make would be to advance upon Hagerstown and endeavor to defeat the enemy at that point. I would not hesitate to make it, even with our diminished numbers, did the army exhibit its former temper and condition. But as far as I am able to judge, the hazard would be great, and a reverse disastrous. I am, therefore, led to pause. End quote. Lee's mention of diminished numbers is a recognition that he'd lost about a third of his force as casualties at Antietam, but his judgment that the army lacked its former temper and condition is an admission that extensive straggling and desertion continued to plague the Army of Northern Virginia after Antietam as it had before the battle. As Lee reluctantly took his pause, Lincoln grew increasingly frustrated as McClellan seemed to find one reorganizational or logistical excuse after another to avoid recapturing the initiative. In truth, the Army of the Potomac needed to rest and refit after Antietam, but the president no longer had any faith in Little Mac. Besides, privately, McClellan was agitating for the removal of his perceived enemies in Washington, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck. In letters to his wife, Little Mac made clear how much he despised Halleck and insisted that he would leave the army if Stanton remained and Halleck did not step down so that he, McClellan, could be reappointed as General-in-Chief. Lincoln had been pleased that Antietam had provided him with the opportunity to issue his preliminary emancipation proclamation, but the president was deeply disappointed that the battle had not resulted in the complete smashing of Lee's army, and he was frustrated that McClellan had then failed to mount a vigorous pursuit of the retreating rebels. That, McClellan might have said, was exactly what was wrong with the president's perception of warfare. It was too simple, too direct too ignorant of the complicated matters that concerned a military commander. Little Mac believed that warfare was a matter best reserved for professionals, those generals who possessed the knowledge, expertise, and training to do the job right. The war was to be won by superior military strategy, and McClellan was prepared to do it, provided he was allowed to do it his way. In his view, the president had meddled in his campaign on the peninsula, only to recall him to salvage what was left after Second Bull Run. So now it was time to refit and prepare for another campaign, and that would take time. Time was also on Lincoln's mind. It was time, Lincoln decided, to pay McClellan another visit. The president arrived at Little Mac's headquarters on October 1st and conferred with the general for a few days. Little Mac thought Lincoln had come to prod him into action and complained, quote, 
these people don't know what an army requires and therefore act stupidly, end quote. But despite his grumbling, McClellan nevertheless promised Lincoln that he would cross the Potomac and go after Lee. After Lincoln's return to Washington, Halleck sent Little Mac his orders, quote, The President directs that you cross the Potomac and give battle to the enemy or drive him south. Your army must move now while the roads are good. The President is very desirous that your army move as soon as possible. You will immediately report when you intend to cross the river, end quote. On October 7th, McClellan again agreed to move, and again he did nothing. On October 13th, Lincoln sent McClellan a long letter expressing his frustration and laying out his discontent. Yet the president still held back. He ended his remarkable note by saying, quote, This is in no sense an order. Lincoln still refused to impose himself fully upon military strategy, and the result was that McClellan responded, as he always had, with a bad case of the slows. He put his first troops over the Potomac only on October 21st, and it took nine days to cross the rest. In response to McClellan's move into the Virginia Piedmont, Robert E. Lee was forced to split his command, leaving Stonewall Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley while shifting James Longstreet east of the Blue Ridge Mountains to Culpeper. By edging toward Richmond, McClellan was able to gain an advantageous position from which he had the shorter route to the Confederate capital than Lee did. In the hands of an aggressive general, that opportunity could have been Lee's undoing, but Little Mac moved with painful slowness until Lee was able to recover and regain a position between the Yankee army and Richmond. When McClellan's advance displayed little urgency and failed to move rapidly enough to get between Lee and Richmond, as Lincoln thought he should, the president decided he'd had enough. On November 5th, the day after northern voters went to the polls in the fall elections, orders went out from Washington, relieving George McClellan of command of the Army of the Potomac. His replacement would be Ambrose Burnside. Hearing of McClellan's removal, Robert E. Lee turned to James Longstreet and said, We always understood each other so well. I fear they may continue to make these changes till they find someone whom I don't understand. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Lincoln's Hundred Days, The Emancipation Proclamation and the War for the Union by Lewis P. Measure. Yep, uh, checking out Major's book will give you a jump start on our upcoming discussion of the Emancipation Proclamation. The book looks at the 100 often tense days between Lincoln's issuing of the preliminary proclamation on September 22nd and his signing of the final version on January 1st, 1863. Um, the book is actually a page turner, even though you know what's going to happen. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. I mentioned earlier that we hope to record the next member's episode tomorrow, although I am on call for work tomorrow. Uh, hopefully the phone won't actually ring. But anyway, we'll see if we can get her done and out to you members of the Strawfoot Brigade. And with our long layoff, we have quite a few new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank. There's Jason and Mike and Rob. 
and Bob and Suzanne and Michael, and William and Trey and Chris, and Brian and Gary. And we also want to thank David M. and Tim B. and David B. for their donations to the podcast over the last several weeks. Thanks, guys. Those donations are always much appreciated. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we dive into the Emancipation Proclamation. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.